Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features expert insight on key new data in multiple myeloma from the virtual 2020 ASH annual meeting. This episode is part of Clinical Care Options' broader overall conference coverage from this meeting. During this podcast, Dr. Shaji Kumar from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and Dr. Sagar Lonial from the Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, will discuss updated results from key trials for induction and maintenance therapy in newly diagnosed myeloma, as well as an analysis of new data on novel agents for relapsed refractory disease. For more information on Dr. Kumar and Dr. Lonial, along with a link to CCO's complete ASH 2020 conference coverage, including downloadable slide sets, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on these important topics. So let's get started this morning. I think the first of the uh, important uh, trials to discuss in the induction therapy is an update on the Griffin study. And the Griffin study uh, was a randomized phase two study that evaluated DARA plus VRD versus VRD as induction. And the primary endpoint was stringent CR by the end of consolidation, and that was reported previously. I think what really is quite striking to me is if you begin to look at maintenance uh, a phase update, what you begin to see is that about 63% of patients achieve a stringent CR better compared to only 47% in the VRD alone arm. So clearly a, a significant improvement in, in depth of response uh, across the board. If you give really good therapy and you give maintenance therapy, it takes longer to see differences in PFS. And, and you may, may or may not see differences in overall survival as well. And that's borne out here. There are hints towards improvement in PFS, I think, but it really is uh, uh, speaking to the power of good induction and good maintenance, really giving us long and durable progression-free and overall survival. So the combination of bortezomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone has been the default initial therapy for treatment of newly diagnosed myeloma, particularly in the transplant setting. And in the older, often frailer patients, either we have used a modified version of bortezomib, lendex like BRD Lite or a doublet like uh, Lendex. The Maya trial was, is very important in terms of the treatment approach for the older patients. Uh, this is a trial that looked at the triplet daratumumab lendex in uh, comparing comparing it to the lenalidomide dexamethasone. Obviously, the progression-free survival has already been shown to be much better for the uh, triplet compared to the doublet, and this continues to uh, remain the same uh, with um, a 48-month PFS that's almost 60% in the DRD compared to 38% in the lendex. And when you look at the overall response rate, uh, you can see that there is some deepening of response as patients have longer follow-up. The other important piece of data from the um, updated analysis is the PFS2, which is often considered to be a surrogate for overall survival. As is clear that the overall survival for this trial is going to take a while to show up, but it's clear that the PFS2 is significantly better, suggesting that we can anticipate that the overall survival might be better for the triplet. With the addition of all the new agents, um, the treatment of newly diagnosed myeloma is one area that has really improved over the past decade. Um, the, it's clear that the proteasome inhibitors and the immunomodulatory drugs and now with the monoclonal antibodies clearly play a role in the initial treatment of multiple myeloma. 
In the transplant eligible patient population, the combination of botulinumab and lenalidomide dexamethasone is a very effective regimen, as has been shown by multiple trials, including the uh, IFM trial that looked at the transplant versus not transplant randomization. And now between Cassiopeia and Griffin, the big question is whether we should be continuing to use the botulinumab imid combination or do we add the deratumumab to the botulinumab and um, lenalidomide combination um, for the initial therapy of myeloma. The Cassiopeia trial shows an improvement in progression-free survival, and as was already uh, discussed, the Griffin trial, while it shows significant depth of response with the injection therapy using a quadruplet, uh, still hasn't shown a uh, improvement in the PFS, but that might uh, take some time to, um, to show up. So I think the big question for the field right now is for the transplant eligible patient population, especially the practice in the US, do we use a four drug combination for those patients or do we use a uh, three drug combination like what was used in the IFM study until we have more survival data? What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, you know, I think that the the paradigm uh, has moved now or is moving towards four versus three. Uh, and And so I think you know, we really do need to parse out the the frail versus the fit patients. Um, and the reason I think that that's the case is we know a couple of things. One, we know that the, the fit patients can clearly tolerate uh, quad-based therapy and that uh, as measured by endpoints such as uh, CR or MRD negativity, there's clearly benefit uh, for more intensive therapy early on. The second is that for the frail, for the truly frail patient, uh, I, I think um, I think quads are going to be a little bit harder uh, to do. And so thinking about um, ways to really maximize clinical benefit but minimize toxicity really becomes a significant goal. And, and so I think the arbitrary age cutoff of 65 continues to be a problem. Um, I don't think that that's the right answer in terms of how we determine fit and frail is when we determine whether or not somebody is potentially transplant eligible uh, or not and are frail. Uh, we need better tools to better define those patients. But in those patients, I think getting it right the first time really is almost more important because you may not get a second shot at therapy. And, and regimens such as Maya uh, clearly demonstrate very long, durable responses. Uh, and, and I think what Tourmaline MM2 suggests as well is that all oral approaches can offer significant benefit for those frail elderly renal compromised patients as well. Um, and so uh, I, I think uh, that, that that distinction is really important. The second piece was about the continued role of transplant in the management of these patients. And, you know, I think, um, you know, if, if you and I at the end of this discussion were to summarize what we think are the big highlights of ASH overall, I think the bispecifics are going to be a big part of that discussion, but I think the resurgence of transplant is another part of that discussion as well. And what I mean by that is we saw a couple of studies that really clearly demonstrated the benefit of high-dose therapy, not just in achieving deep responses, as we're seeing in trials like Forte or the IFM, where you can achieve those deep responses perhaps in the non-transplant arm. But more importantly, that transplant leads to more sustained and durable MRD negativity. And that to me is really the important benchmark. It's not whether or not you achieve MRD negativity, it's how durable that MRD negativity is. And it's clear from many of these studies that transplant allows you to have a more durable MRD negative progression-free survival. Yeah, it's interesting to see how all the regimens we have in the upfront setting now, we are looking at 
whether it be transplant followed by maintenance therapy or the non-transplant therapy like myatral, we are easily looking at five, four to five years of first progression, freedom from progression after diagnosis, which is quite a significant progress in this disease. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The Apollo study was a um, randomized phase three trial that asked the question whether adding dratimumab to pomalidomide and dexamethasone would improve the progression-free survival in patients with um, more than one prior line of therapy. And patients were treated with subcutaneous dratimumab in this uh, study, the standard dose and schedule uh, with the, again, standard dose schedule of pomalidomide and dexamethasone and patients were continued on treatment until disease progression. When you look at the primary endpoint, uh, adding the dratimumab to pomalidomide and dexamethasone significantly improved the progression-free survival with a one-year PFS rate of 52% for the uh, triplet compared to 35% for the uh, doublet regimen. And the addition of dratimumab was well-tolerated as we have seen with the other clinical trials. So I think the, the data from the uh, Apollo trial has to be uh, put in the context of other three drug combinations that have been studied uh, in these um, in patients with one to three prior lines of therapy. So uh, with majority of the patients who are relapsing after their first line therapy, being refractory to lenalidomide or significantly exposed to lenalidomide, the question that always comes up is what is the ideal uh, regimen to start these patients on? Should we treat them with a pomalidomide and monoclonal antibody-based combination or uh, should we, we be using a proteasome inhibitor with monoclonal antibody-based combination? And we have several phase three trials that have uh, shown us data that might that can help guide um, our selection of therapy. Yeah, I think that um, the challenge that we struggle with with these kinds of trials um, is, as you discussed, uh, Dr. Kumar, the real question is, DARA is the backbone for first relapse, and do you partner it with a PI or do you partner it with an IMIN? Um, and in the LEN-resistant patient population, and I think this comes up often in routine clinical practice, do you consider a patient progressing on LEN maintenance to be LEN-resistant? And in my mind, the answer is yes. Um, and so I might go to a newer IMIT or I might go to a proteasome inhibitor. And there, I think there are arguments on both sides of the of the of the coin about whether which what what the better partner is for DARA, uh, I think that this trial unfortunately didn't give us data on what to do in the first relapse setting that that you were discussing earlier. Uh, whereas we do have PI trials that do look at PI plus DARA in the first relapse setting, uh, and can give us a better estimation of where things are going to be. There was published data from, um, I think, David Siegel and his group looking at second relapse as opposed to this, which was even later relapse uh, with Palmdera, and the PFS was longer. Uh, our experience from our institution at first relapse, the, the, the median PFS is longer as well. Uh, so I think it does give us reason to feel comfortable using Palmdera in the first relapse setting, but I just wish we had an actual trial that asked the question that I think many of us in the U.S. practice, which is, where does POM, what's the PFS for POMDERA in that first relapse setting? So the next study to discuss is the STOMP study. And the STOMP study uh, was a multi-arm phase one, phase two dose escalation expansion of combinations of Selenexer. And um, uh, in this analysis, we looked at Selenexer plus POMDEX uh, with a number of different schedules. 
And I think what we know about many of the weekly dosing of Selenexer studies uh, is that much of the issues that we see with the twice a week dosing uh, from the STORM study are significantly reduced. And I think many of us in our routine clinical practice uh, are using once a week dosing with other partners as well. And it was nice to see this data for the combination with pomalidomide and dexamethasone. The PFS in the POM naive patients was about 12.3 months, uh, which again is, is significantly better than we saw uh, with a Selenexor or what you'd expect with pomalidomide alone in this patient population uh, and really speaks to the potency of that synergy between the two drugs together uh, with a DOR of about 11 months. So the belandamide mafodotin is the other uh, drug that has been approved for treatment of uh, patients who have become refractory to the uh, commonly used treatments, um, including the immunomodulatory drugs, proteasome inhibitors, and the monoclonal antibodies. So DREAM6 was a, uh, was a phase one study, uh, phase 1B study, evaluating Belomaf in combination with bortezomib and dexamethasone. If you begin to look at investigator-assessed best responses, about 75% was the overall response rate. Uh, and then again, if you look at by prior lines of therapy, uh, what you'd expect is as, you, as patients are more heavily exposed or potentially resistant to bortezomib, the overall response rate drops. Uh, but again, in general, 78% among 18 patients uh, had a response with about two-thirds achieving uh, a VGPR or better. The um, Algonkin study looked at the combination of belandamab with uh, pomalidomide and dexamethasone. Uh, when you look at the overall response rate, um, nearly 88% um, of these patients actually had uh, a response to the combination of um, belandamab and pomalidomide. And specifically, when you look at the uh, EMID-PI refractory patient population, again, small numbers, but still had a response rate that was quite uh, high. I think the trial clearly shows that you can combine um, belandamab with uh, pomalidomide and get deep and durable responses in patients who have become refractory to both um, lenalidomide as well as other proteasome inhibitors and monoclonal antibodies targeting CD38. <clears throat> what I think these uh, these studies in aggregate, both the Selenexer, the Selenexer combination studies, uh, as well as the uh, uh, belantamab uh, combination studies really do is bring together the idea that um, uh, that once we get a drug approved in refractory myeloma, our first thought again is to bring it earlier and to combine it with other drugs with significant known activity in myeloma. And what we often do when we do that is begin to tweak the dose and schedule to make them a little bit more tolerable or combinable. And you see that in the STOMP study where uh, the weekly dosing is what's used in combination with pomalidomide and dexamethasone. You see that in the Algonquin study where um, uh, the dose frequency for belantamab is different than it is with the single agent uh, in combination. And I think that these really do help us to understand how to practically take these drugs, put them together, and use them uh, in our daily practice uh, beyond what we learned from the original phase two uh, uh, registration studies. Yeah, I think it's very uh, interesting how obviously these new drugs are being introduced. Um, as we talked about in the early relapse, uh, clearly we are going to be using the monoclonal anti-CD38 targeted antibody with images of proteasome inhibitors. So by the time the patients get to their second relapse, they are often, or second and third relapse, they are often refractory to 
the PIs, the emits, and the um, monoclonal antibody targeting CD38. So I think both the uh, both these series of trial, all these, these these series of trials looking at selenexor or belantamab in combination with the standard of care agents, really gives us some data uh, to say where should we be using these. Um, and um, the, again, with both PI and proteasome, both proteasome inhibitors and the immunomodulatory drugs, um, clearly this this set of trials tells us um, that these could potentially be used at the third relapse. Or the more provocative question is whether they can even move earlier um, in the, to, to the first relapse, uh, replacing maybe the anti-CD38 based therapies, um, or in combination with um, the uh, monoclonal antibodies like what has been done with Selinexor um, in combination with Daratimumab. So I think we clearly have now um, four classes of drugs, or four or five classes of drugs that we still can use at the time of the first to third relapse, the proteasome inhibitors, the monoclonal antibodies, uh, the immunomodulatory drugs, and selenexor, and obviously the BCMA-targeted therapies like belantamab. So there are a lot of exciting immunotherapy um, approaches that were presented at the ASH meeting this year. Clearly, this is the year of immunotherapy for myeloma. There were several um, trials that have looked at uh, the different CAR-T uh, approaches. And clearly, um, in addition to other immunotherapy approaches like the monoclonal antibodies, as well as the bispecifics, the CAR-T trials have clearly shown the proof of principle in terms of the ability to use autologous CAR-T cells or autologous T cells uh, to adapt them to uh, treat myeloma. The CAR-T-TUDE 1 study uh, looked at a BCMA-targeted CAR-T, and this is an update of data that was presented at the previous meetings. And when you look at the progression-free survival, we have, we have a median uh, PFS uh, that has not quite yet been reached, um, but with a one-year PFS rate of about 76% seem to be better than what we have seen with many of the other CAR-T studies at this point in time. Yeah, then the next uh, CAR, um, CAR product to really be discussed is the CRB402. And so the concept behind um, uh, the BB21217 is to take a traditional CAR, but incubate it with a PI3K inhibitor, uh, ex vivo, prior to infusion with the goal of skewing cells towards the memory phenotype. And that has been demonstrated in a number of animal models. And the, the, the CRB402 study is really another way to look at this in, in the patient population. Uh, if you look at the total, uh, all patients in aggregate, it was about a 68% overall response rate as well. And the median time to response was quick, as we've seen uh, with most of these CAR T cells. What was noted is that patients that had a more durable response did seem to have better persistence, which was, again, one of the main goals of this overall. Uh, and um, patients with a more memory-like phenotype had peak expansion, again, that was significantly higher. Uh, both in CD4 and CD8 cells. And so it really did sort of fit uh, the, the, the paradigm or the model of what we were looking for in this. And I think speaks to similar to what we said earlier uh, with, uh, with pharmacologic therapy, uh, where once we see it, we try and tweak it to make it better. Uh, I think this study and subsequent studies that we're going to talk about are attempts to take the CAR T-cell product and tweak it to try and make it better, to make it last longer, and ultimately improve durability of responses uh, for patients with refractory myeloma. 
Now, the prime study looked at a different approach to creating the CAR T cell, which is using a transposon. Um, and um, this is the um, trial that um, looked at a variety of different um, regimens prior to uh, infusion of the CAR T product, as well as a different approach to creating the CAR Ts. So this product is again P PBCMA, um, similar approach in terms of the apheresis, and then patients could get a variety of different regimens in between, um, and then um, receive the infusion of the PBCMA. And they also had multiple different cohorts in the study looking at different approaches in terms of what can be done post CAR T infusion. In terms of uh, safety, uh, the majority of the patients um, uh, had uh, some adverse events. However, the CRS was noted only in about 17% of these patients. There were two patients with neurotoxicity. Uh, the hematological toxicity was quite comparable with the other trials, but clearly much lower rate of CRS at this point in time. Now, when you look at the overall response rate, um, especially at the higher dose levels, uh, the majority of the patients responded, uh, including uh, some patients uh, who were able to get a VGPR or better. So clearly, the other you know, alternate approaches to creating the CAR T cells may hold promise in this particular field in myeloma. So uh, the, the last of the CAR products that we're going to talk about was, again, another innovation in terms of how we approach this. Uh, and this was the first in human phase one universal study de design. And this was really the, uh, the ALO CAR T cell, again, targeting BCMA, uh, but using a, um, uh, a universal donor, if you will, uh, to, allow, um, uh, to allow for more rapid treatment with CAR T cells rather than the current process of collecting autologous T cells and may get around the idea of T cell health from the donor being an issue with the durability and uh, efficacy of CAR T cells. When we look at uh, safety in this analysis, again, a majority of patients had grade one, grade two CRS. Uh, again, some infections, not a surprise given how heavily pretreated these patients were and the standard lymphodepletion that was used. So not really a major surprise overall. If we begin to look at the overall response rate, again, 50 to 75%, depending upon the cohort uh, that you're looking at in aggregate, uh, again, suggesting that this could in fact be a viable uh, treatment approach uh, and that many of these patients actually had quite durable responses. Um, so the median time to response was relatively quick, uh, about two weeks. Uh, but more importantly, there are several patients now that are several months out uh, from their initial infusion. And I'll tell you, one of the concerns I had about the ALO concept was that uh, having uh, knowing what we think, what I think we know, which is that persistence is really an issue with an ALO donor, you may actually get shorter persistence than you would get with an auto. Uh, but what was really quite uh, intriguing is that a number of patients, particularly at the higher doses, had uh, pretty significant persistence of these cells at least uh, for four months after infusion, suggesting that the rejection concern we had with an allo CAR T cell may be more limited because of all the other immunosuppression that goes on with the patient. And this now to me becomes a much more viable concept given that we've demonstrated A, it can work, B, it's safe, and C, that you can have significant persistence in these patients. And so I think it does speak to a really new and novel approach for delivering CAR, CAR T cell therapy that may be more efficient than some of the current approaches that we're using. It's clearly interesting to see how the CAR T field has evolved. And clearly, I think the initial studies clearly showed that there is 
you know, there's efficacy and we can actually use the autologous uh, T cells to develop an immune response, which we were obviously concerned about as these patients have seen so many different drugs. Um, but I think the allogenic CAR T cells especially offers that ability to use an off-the-shelf product. In fact, I think the median time from signing the consent to getting the treatment was about five days in this trial, so suggesting that we can get these patients uh, treatment relatively fast, um, especially in the relapsed refractory setting where patients cannot wait for very long to get their, their own T cells uh, manufactured and um, having it uh, brought back. Yeah, and, and I think what we see with all of these studies together is an evolution from the Model T, which was the first CAR T cell we gave, into more modern CARs, uh, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, with the idea of trying to do things from what we've learned uh, from the science to try and improve their efficacy, durability, and safety overall. So the other immunotherapy platform that is really shown promise in myeloma uh, is uh, are the bispecifics. Uh, in a way, this is again based on the same premise that you can um, use the autologous T cells to develop an uh, anti-tumor response that can lead to response uh, lead to uh, disease control. Uh, unlike the CAR T cell, where you have to do the ephoresis and manufacture the CAR T cells, in the bispecifics, you are es essentially looking at antibody that can bring the autologous T cell close to the tumor cell. Uh, resulting in an immune synapse formation and the cell kill. Uh, there have been several products that have been going through clinical trials. One of the first uh, by specifics to be uh, tested in the uh, clinical uh, trial setting uh, were the AMG701 um, and its precursor molecule, the AMG420. So the AMG701 uh, study was a phase one dose escalation study um, and patients were continued on treatmental disease progression. Um, the, the 85 patients were enrolled on the study. Again, as we saw with the CAR-T trials, the majority of the patients were triple refractory um, with nearly two-thirds of these patients. Um, and when you look at the safety data, uh, the dose-limiting toxicities primarily involved cytokine release syndrome, as one would expect from these immunotherapies, well um, managed with tocilizumab and steroids. The median duration for the cytokine release syndrome was fairly short for about two days. And um, the other toxicities were um, along the lines of what we would anticipate with these treatments, uh, some hematological toxicity as well as GI toxicity. Uh, in terms of overall response rate, um, nearly 83% of the uh, patients uh, in, the, uh, in the highest dose cohort um, had a response. Again, very small number of patients in that particular cohort. But if you look at the, um, the bulk of the patients in the um, 3 to 18 milligrams, which is 55 patients, the overall response rate was 36%. And the interesting aspect is many of these responses were uh, durable, with some patients uh, now uh, going almost over two years uh, still on uh, therapy. Obviously, we need more longer-term data, particularly at the higher dose levels, which is considered to be the recommended uh, phase two dosing uh, for this particular um, drug. The next of the BCMA bispecifics is uh, teclistimab, and uh, we'd seen some early data on teclistimab previously, uh, and uh, uh, functionally, uh, what its difference is from others. There are probably some subtle structural differences. Uh, it certainly is not a bite, uh, as we saw from the previous compound, 
but truly a bispecific uh, CD3 BCMA co-targeting antibody. Now, again, if you begin to look at efficacy of uh, teclistimab, what I want you to look at is, again, the random, uh, recommended phase two dose. Uh, and what you'll see is uh, with the sub-Q dosing, BGPR or better, of about 55%. Overall response rate was somewhere between 67 and 71% across the board. Uh, and there were complete remissions achieved that were, in fact, uh, MRD negative at 10 to the minus 6 uh, uh, in, in many of the patients uh, that had MRD assessment performed. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, in summary, what we see from teclistimab is uh, clearly another BCMA-targeted bispecific. It can be given subcutaneously, which, as we know, with DARA is a huge uh, convenience factor for patients across the board. Uh, and um, uh, uh, that uh, this clearly is very active, uh, has very little uh, a severe CRS uh, and very little severe neurotoxicity, most of which can be managed uh, similarly to what we do for CAR T-cells. So there were several other bispecific molecules that um, were also um, the data for which was presented during the meeting. The REGN5458 um, is a, another BCMA targeting bispecific um, that is starts with a weekly infusion and then goes to every other week. And when you look at the overall response rate, at, um, when you look at the dose level 6, the um, the highest dose level steadied, the overall response rate was about 38%. Um, and um, again, when you look at the overall uh, patient population, um, you can see that patients with highly refractory disease are getting response uh, with the REGN5458. And when you look at the duration of response, you can see that these responses um, have been durable. There are several patients who have had responses that have gone um, almost to a year or beyond. Um, and as we go to the higher dose levels, hopefully we will continue to see these durable responses. Yeah, I think, you know, if you take all of the BCMA bispecifics or um, uh, T-cell engagers, uh, probably as a generic way to describe them, uh, what we see, I think, is where we were with CAR T-cells targeting BCMA about a year ago. Uh, they all have pretty significant activity. It's more than I actually expected to see from this class of drugs, given the T-cell health of patients in refractory myeloma. I thought historically has been pretty poor, uh, and so I wasn't sure you'd actually be able to get responses uh, to these approaches. Uh, and uh, more, uh, more importantly, uh, what we need data on is larger patient numbers and uh, durability, uh, because I think they all look relatively similar. Uh, and so getting that longer-term follow-up will help us to understand whether those subtle structural differences translate into clinical differences as well. And I think the bispecifics really open up the myeloma field for immunotherapies. The One of the disadvantages with the CAR T-cell, in addition to the waiting time, is the fact that limited number of institutions will have the infrastructure to do everything that's needed. In, in contrast, I think the, the bispecifics will really open up the field because many more institutions and hospitals can uh, give this therapy, it can be given in a timely fashion. And I think most importantly, as you already mentioned, it can be combined with other drugs, which then makes it um, a attractive um, uh, avenue to take it to the uh, frontline setting where we already have so many other effective drugs. And hopefully this kind of combinations will allow us to get um, these patients into deep responses. 
One thing we have realized across all these different studies is the BCMA is an excellent target uh, for developing therapeutics for myeloma. And this has been um, really taken advantage of as we have seen with both the CAR-T trials as well as the uh, bispecifics. And, and I think, uh, you know, again, I think uh, what, more people coming to the party in myeloma is a good thing. We're going to now talk about sevastimab. And sevastimab is another bispecific antibody, uh, only it targets something different than what we've seen with most of the bispecifics we've talked about today, which we're targeting BCMA. Sevastimab is a bispecific that uh, targets uh, FCRH5. Uh, and FCRH5, again, is another almost more specific uh, marker on the surface of malignant plasma cells uh, than BCMA uh, in terms of its spectrum of expression. And so I think represents another really important immune target uh, that we have not had any antibodies or any, any immunotherapy targeted towards uh, going forward. This was a phase one uh, dose escalation study of sevastimab, uh, um, again, uh, in patients with relapsed and refractory myeloma. When you begin to look at safety, uh, what, again, I think you'll see is that um, uh, CRS among the non-heme toxicities was the most common one that we saw, but only one patient had grade three or grade four. So, again, a majority of this is grade one, grade two, which is not a surprise for pretty much any bispecific that we're using at this time point. When you look at 51 of the first 53 patients that were treated uh, at the higher dosing cohorts, what you see is an overall response rate of about 53%. When you include a, a larger number of patients uh, uh, or just look at the specific highest dose, 61% was the overall response rate. The response occurred relatively quickly uh, and I think really speaks to uh, when you begin to look at duration, that this could be quite a durable response, even at the lower doses. Uh, and I think this is really important to note because, again, while this is certainly a new target and an early target, we are seeing patients that are well over a year out in terms of durability of their responses, which I think uh, really speaks to the power of this potential new immune target across the board. Uh, and I think is really exciting because we now have more tools to play with when we think about managing refractory relapse. And more importantly, as we begin to think about designing the best way to potentially cure myeloma, we have new weapons now that we can bring into earlier lines of therapy as well. And finally, I think uh, along those lines, you know, getting newer targets that has been that has not been studied is clearly going to be important. Uh, and as we understand the biology of the disease, we are clearly going to identify more targets that we can go after. So another target that has been um, identified is the GPRC, GPCR5D, uh, which has been shown to be present on uh, the majority of the myeloma cells. So using the same approach that has been taken for other bispecific uh, antibodies like teclistimab, talcotimab uh, is targeting the GPCR5D. Um, and again, this is a dose escalation study, um, which uh, enrolled overall 157 patients with 19 of them being treated at the recommended phase two dose. Now, one advantage of this particular bispecific is the fact that it can be given subcutaneously, which clearly uh, is an advantage for the patients uh, and can also be given uh, less often than weekly. And in terms of responses, um, with the higher dose levels, uh, you can see that nearly two-thirds of these patients had a 
uh, overall response, including some patients getting a very good partial response or complete response. And I think um, when you look at the durability of response, both with IV and subcutaneous dosing strategy, you can see that uh, these patients uh, clearly have um, uh, durable responses, even at some of the lower doses that have been uh, studied so far. So clearly, I think the area of bispecifics or the T-cell engagers uh, is rapidly um, uh, exploding in myeloma. We have multiple targets, multiple different products that are going through clinical trials. And in fact, some of these agents are already being tested in the setting of early relapses um, and also uh, being explored in the setting of newly diagnosed myeloma. So I think the next three, four years, we're going to see a dramatic change in terms of <clears throat> not only which immunotherapy we use, but also where we use these immunotherapies in the context of current uh, currently used drugs. And I think from that point, that perspective, I think something we talked about in the beginning uh, regarding the use of autologous stem cell transplant, while it's going to continue to be play an important role in the foreseeable future, I think now we have uh, potentially therapeutics that can um, put up a challenge uh, to the use of autologous stem cell transplant in the upfront setting. And many of the ongoing clinical trials are asking that question. Yeah, I think the um, the availability of both telquetamab and uh, sevastimab to me is really an exciting development because two more immune targets means that we can potentially alternate uh, treatments early on to try and sort of hit the myeloma from different immune targets at the same time using our PIs and our IMIDs. Um, I suspect there may still be a role for high-dose melphalan, certainly uh, in certain subsets of patients to try and get to MRD negativity earlier. Uh, but uh, I think um, it really portends for us putting together a modern total therapy approach to eliminate myeloma. Uh, and um, I, I think it's really exciting because these drugs, while they're active in refractory myeloma, are going to be equally as active, if not more so, when we bring them earlier. Thank you very much, Dr. Kumar and Dr. Loniel, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full ASH 2020 conference coverage program from the Clinical Care Options website and to download summary slide sets of the different studies associated with this discussion, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. <music>